your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is on page 1014 in the Bible under the seats in front of you. 1 Peter. And while you're turning there, the moment you get there, pray with me. Okay, I'm going to pray for Samuel. He's out of town. And I know he usually does a pastoral prayer and he, he offers supplications. And that is a good thing. I never want to forget that on the Lord's Day. So we want to offer a few supplications for ourselves and some churches around us in the world. And then we will get to um, the feast that God has for us in First Peter. Pray with me. Lord God, we, we thank you for this opportunity to gather on the Lord's Day. To see holiness as you have revealed it. To pursue after it. Lord God, we come to you as a congregation with many supplications, many requests, many, many things that we need from your hand and we desire to see done in this world, this country, our city, our churches, our families. Lord, we ask today that you would strengthen us, that you would strengthen us by our gathering together, hearing your word. Lord, I ask for those in our congregation that are under the weight of difficulty and trial, whether it be their health or other circumstances, I pray that you would build them up today, give them a, a renewed ability to strive after you in holiness with their effort. Father God, we want to pray not merely for ourselves, but for those outside our midst. We want to pray for our, our senior pastor, Samuel Clintock, and his wife, Anka, and their children as they're spending time in Ohio. We pray, Lord, that you would give them a refreshed family time, a time of renewal, a time of, of, of ease in the gospel, not taking a break from holiness or taking a break from meeting with you, but change of pace in their normal responsibilities. I pray that that would do good to their soul, and in turn, Lord, it would bless us. Father, we also want to pray for Kenny Avenue Baptist Church here in our own city. We pray, Lord, that you would help their search for a pastor go well. We pray that they would look for the right things. And we pray that the right man of God would sense your leading to that place and that you would make that a sister church in our city that proclaims the gospel and that is a light for you here. Lord, we pray for Crawford Avenue Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia. Father, we thank you for their ministry there. Lord, we pray that in light of their recent talks about racial reconciliation and unity and those who have left their church because of it, we pray, Lord, that you would you would strengthen their pastors. Lord, we lift up this church and so many others across our country that haven't yet connected the dots between race and holiness. Lord, we pray for the thousands of pastors that gathered just this week at Together for the Gospel Conference and, and heard preaching on your holiness and heard messages about how good you are and our sanctification. We pray, Lord, for their churches that they would minister in light of that. We pray, Lord, for churches overseas, 
we pray, even for the conflict in Syria, that you would give wisdom to our leadership and those who are doing things for good, who are withholding and battling against physical evil. And Lord, even though our country, by military might, cannot change a single heart spiritually, we pray that that our efforts are used for good and that your gospel would be able to go forth. Lord, help us now as we come to your word to receive the food you have for us. We pray for grace. We pray for ears to hear. And we can never pray enough while we listen. So give us prayerful listening hearts as you speak to us in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. How much effort should you give to personal holiness? This is a personal question today. The sermon is going to be very individualistic because here in about another week, two weeks, we're going to be in second chapter of Peter where it's going to be all about our corporate holiness. Today it's all about individual holiness. So answer this question in your mind. How much effort should you give to your personal holiness? How much effort are you giving right now to your personal holiness? If we could review your week and look at how often holiness was on your mind and something you, you were striving for and you gave great effort to, what would we see? How does a pursuit of holiness sound to you? Does Does it sound appealing? Be holy? Does it sound like the 1950s or some decade in the past? Be holy. Does it sound boring? Be holy. Does it sound like the hobby of a a certain preacher you know? Be holy. Does it sound like a four-letter word? It is. H-O-L-Y. Holiness. Holy. Does it sound like something only super Christians do? Be holy. Does it sound like one more thing added to your already busy and stressful? And hectic life. Lord, help me keep it together for this sermon. I'm tearful right now because I think about how So often I treat holiness, and I think many of us do, we treat holiness like I've treated my gym memberships throughout the last 20 years of my life. You can ask my wife, Kelsey. We lived in Washington, D.C. and had a gym membership. We actually had a discount at the 24-7 fitness place because of our church membership. One of the church members was in leadership there. When we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, we had a, a gym membership. And every single time, you know what would happen? excuses would come up. I love that idea of having the access to the fitness, but when it came to putting forth effort, to being uncomfortable, to sweating, to changing your schedule, to make it happen, it just never happened. And I'm afraid that quite often our experience of holiness in the Christian life is a lot like a gym membership. We sparingly 
take advantage of it. We sparingly make use of the commands God has given us. Christians like the idea of having access to holy teaching. And we also like the idea of just using it when we need it. It sounds good, but it seems like something extra that we can get along okay with without it. But to actually participate in holiness as as what God's called us to is uncomfortable. And many times it is inconvenient. It requires strenuous effort, energy, exertion. The idea seems to be more comfortable than the reality of going after it. Well, this passage today in 1 Peter helps us understand holiness and the effort that we have to push forward to strive for holiness. The effort, the motivation, it's all wrapped up in this passage. So the call today on your life and mine is really clear and really simple. If you've been called to salvation, which I assume most of you who are listening assume you're believers, if you've been called to salvation, brothers and sisters, you've been called to pursue holiness with great effort. Not occasionally, great effort. And it's my prayer that when we look at these verses today, we will leave this place not just nodding in agreement, but being able to look at our lives where we are now living with more effort towards holiness because of what God has told us here. Look here with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 13. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. This is a very special part of the letter because up until this point, not a single command or imperative has been given. Peter's writing to scattered exiles, and he's just told them about their salvation. Verse after verse after verse, 12 verses. Your salvation's glorious. It changes the identity of who you are. It's so glorious, it, it overlaps the past, the present, the future. It's more glorious than your imagination. But it's not just something to gaze at or hold on to like a gym membership that has no bearing on what you do. It has an implication on your life. So notice with me, we're going to read. Notice all the things Peter calls these Christians to do. And then I want you to notice how the gospel is right in the middle of our passage. It's an anchor to what he's saying for them to do, and everything that they're doing flows out of it. Let's read 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So this morning, two points, an easy two points, easy, hang everything that's going to be said on these two points, okay? We are called to live holy, that's point one, and we are called to love well. We are called to live holy, and we are called to love well. Live holy, this is verses 13 all the way through 21, and to love well, this is verses 18 through 25. Live holy and love well. This is a good passage. Did you notice the word holiness used right there in verse 16? You can sum up the whole passage by right there, verse 16. You shall be holy, for I am holy. But there is a problem in our Christian life, and that is we don't really have a definition for holiness. I remember getting ready for this passage, and I would ask a few people in our church, hey, what's your definition of holiness? And some would hesitate to try to give a carefully crafted answer, but I noticed the more they talked in their definition, they kept grabbing one attribute of God after another, and it was hard to just pinpoint, what is holiness? If we're called to put forth effort towards holiness, step one is just understanding what it is, defining it. Here's a definition of holiness. To be holy means to be set apart and devoted to God. Set apart and devoted to God. This is what happens to us with our union with Christ in salvation. This is what is pictured all throughout the Old Testament. Remember the people of Israel, they lived in a holy setting because God dwelt in their midst. If God wasn't in their midst, there'd be no purpose for holiness. But because he was in their midst, holiness was real and it affected everything. The tabernacle, the tent, the shovels they used. They were all holy. And keep in mind that definition. Holy because they're set apart. If you think, how can a, a shovel be holy or a table with some bread on it? Well, if that's set apart for God's use and devoted to God, he possesses that. That's what makes it holy. Here's a second problem. We we often don't know a, a definition, so we need to be reminded of it. 
But more than just a definition, even when we know that, we face a a problem that that J.C. Ryle faced in the year 1877. He wrote, The real practical holiness that Christians should give their effort to does not receive the attention it deserves. Personal holiness and consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to in this modern country. That was England well over 100 years ago. Think about today. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, The Gap, The Missing Spot in Our Holiness, is this. The hole in our holiness is that we don't care much about it, and we don't give it much attention. J.C. Ryle said this, that same pastor, I have no desire to make an idol of holiness. I don't wish to dethrone Christ and put holiness in his place. But I must candidly say, I wish that sanctification, our act of growing in holiness, sanctification, I wish that sanctification was more thought of in this day than it seems to be. And I therefore take occasion to press the subject on all believers into whose ears these words may fall. I fear it is sometimes forgotten that God has married together justification and sanctification. They are distinct and different things beyond question, but one is never found without the other. All justified people are sanctified, and all sanctified are justified. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Okay, how do we do it? How do we strive to holiness? How do we keep from just feeling guilty that we're not holy enough? How do we even have motivation to see holiness and pursue it and strive after it? That's what this passage is all about. Let's walk through it, and I know that God will use this in your life as he has in mine. This is like a spiritual weight room of sorts. First thing we got to do is use mental muscles towards holiness. Did you see that in verse 13. Look with me in verse 13. Our mind muscles. It says we must prepare our minds for action being sober-minded. So this term is, is literally to gird up the loins of your mind, which might sound very strange. But in the ancient world, these flowing long robes, that was what people would wear. That was the custom. And even the tunic underneath was a, a continuous long woven garment. And it was hard to do work or conduct warfare or do strenuous activity with all these flowing robes. They would get bound up and you would would trip over them. So right here, there is a call to gird up the loins of our minds, which just meant take that loose outer robe and fold it up, bound it in your belt, tuck it in, free up the body for movement, brace your body for the support. If you're relaxing, there's no need for this. But if you're about to do something strenuous with activity, you need to do this. Peter says, Christians, gird up the loins of your mind. Depending on what era you grew up in, this might resonate with you. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. You've got work to do. Or those younger Christians in the room, those millennials, put on the under armor and yoga pants of your mind. Okay, something that you can do activity in. 
if you are in motion, your mind has to be ready. There's a journey that we are on as pilgrims and exiles. There's work to be done. There's spiritual warfare to fight. This is your first step. Peter is saying this to scattered exiles who are on the move. This is why he uses that term, gird up the loins of your mind. This is the opposite of a casual mindset. We know that because of what directly follows it. Did you see that second exhortation there? Being sober-minded. This is, yes, the opposite of drunkenness. But it's not, it's not just physical, it's spiritual. A spiritual sobriety. Sober-mindedness means you take truth seriously. You take truth seriously. It doesn't mean joylessly. It doesn't mean stoically with a grudge. Often the people who take truth most seriously, the right way, are joyful. So if you think that you're taking truth seriously, but you're not a joyful person, you're not somebody that people would consider being warm around, you're not taking truth seriously enough. We are to be sober-minded. This is a reflective term. It, it means that we're alert to truth. Even those who never touch a sip of alcohol can be inebriated and drunk spiritually. They're sipping on the world's ideas. They're sipping and they're drinking of the world's priorities and promises that our culture gives us. The fantasies and ideologies, even of your own mind, if you drink on those things instead of what God gives you to drink, you will not be sober-minded. Our sober-mindedness is important. It's sometimes even translated self-control. It's commanded of elders. Every church elder is to be sober-minded. But it's also for older men and older women. The book of Titus tells us older men, be dignified, be sober-minded. Older women, do likewise and teach the younger, younger women the same. And then in the book of Titus, when he's laying out all these descriptions for men and women, old and young, the young men, he only gives them one command. Young men, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. This is something for all of us as Christians. One of the main work of a Christian lies in the right management of his heart and mind. And for the Apostle Peter, he tells them to gird up the loins of their mind, but take a quick glance with me throughout this letter of how often the mind comes into play of their obedience. So look, look, glance, glance at it. Chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. We're, we're to be mindful of God when we endure sorrows and even when we suffer unjustly. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, we're told to have a unity of mind. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So one of the ways we battle against sin is getting our minds ready and armed for battle. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, be sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Do you see that? Chapter 4, verse 7. And then look at chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your enemy prowls around. He wants to devour you. 
Your alertness as a Christian depends on your mind. Your mental muscles are meant to be used for holiness. This is not easy. It does take effort. But we can't be holy if we let our minds go. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. And the effect of having a sound mind is told to us right there. Chapter 1, verse 13. If our minds are prepared for action and we're sober-minded, it allows us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. Your hopes are established based off where your mindset is. And Peter wants them to have all of their hope completely, fully set on Christ and this grace that they're going to receive. Holy living is no accident. It begins with the proper mindset. But there's another muscle, not just our mind. There's a heart muscle involved. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. These passions, these desires and impulses that come upon us, it doesn't seem to be logical at all. It just seems to spring upon us. You know what this is like to have some lust rise in your heart or to have some urge to want to lash out in anger at somebody or passions for laziness. The scriptures tell us, do not be conformed to these passions. Why? Because of the way that verse ends. These are telling of your former ignorance when you give in to them. This is a former ignorance before you knew God and you knew of his ways. Don't be conformed to them. I used to think as a young Christian that if I felt in any way a sinful tendency or a sinful passion, I'm, I'm unholy already. It took me a long time, and I, w- I want some of you who are young Christians who were baptized just, just recently, I know that baptism is not when you got saved, but it typically marks the beginning of your Christian life. You young Christians, don't make the mistake that when you are tempted, you're automatically unholy, so you might as well just give in. Christ was tempted and yet without sin. When you are tempted, that's when you see and feel that passion, that desire, and you have the choice, do I conform to it or do I not? Do I mortify it? Do I kill it? Do I set it aside? Do I do something else or do I conform to it and give in? Don't believe the lie that just because passions of former ignorance come and go in your life and rise up that, well, you're not, you're not holy, so you've you got to give in. That's not true. Think of this as being like a child, like an obedient child, as it says at the beginning of verse 14. We want to please our Father, so we don't want to give in to, to passions that go against his way and his character that he's told us about. But there's another muscle, not just our mind, not just our heart. The muscle of our will, our volition, that, that thing in us, in our soul that chooses You can actually exercise the muscle of your will. Did you know that? It says there in verse 15, As he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. So all of your choices, all of your conduct is meant to be touched by holiness. Your entertainment, your marriage, your work ethic, your friendships, your parenting, your retirement, 
your social media persona, the part of you that just goes out to run errands and go to the grocery store, the part of you that does chores around the house or doesn't do chores around the house. Those areas of your life are meant to be holy. We know that because he says all of your conduct, not just the Sunday, Lord's Day stuff that we we read about earlier in the service, how the Lord's Day is this holy day, but all of your conduct. Holy living and all your conduct does not mean that routine things are off limits. Often, this is where the trap of living unholy lurks, where legalism slips in. Our entertainment is often another example of how, how do I be holy in my entertainment? Really, all my conduct, Lord? Yes, all your conduct. Can I watch this movie or this show? Can I listen to this or look at that? We're faced with some options for our will, our choosing, aren't we? Option one, we could look at the world around us and decide, should I participate in this or do this or watch this? Should I be entertained in this way? Option two, we can look at the Christians around us in our church and let them decide for us. Option three, maybe we could email our pastor, get their take on it so that we don't offend them. Option four, we could do some research and maybe look up things on a website, spiritual blog or something of our favorite Christian author. You know what a better option is? Being holy in all your conduct. And if there's an area of your life and your conduct seems to, you don't know what what holiness to do, go to the scriptures and develop convictions based on the word. Go to the scriptures. That's what Peter does here in verse 16. One thing you might add as a filter, as a test, speaking of the scripture for your entertainment, you could ask, can I thank God for this while I partake of it? If you can't thank God for it while you're doing it, you know already you're going against Scripture because we're supposed to give thanks to rejoice in all circumstances. But go to the Scripture to develop your convictions about holiness. Peter does that here in verse 16. This is your Bible intake muscle. Are you exercising that, Christian? The muscle of intaking God's Word, digesting it, absorbing it, living it out. Verse 16 is all about what is written. Did you see that? Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. One symptom of our our ease and our comfort and our apathy towards holiness is that we don't pay careful attention to God's word and meditate on it and absorb it and live it out. This verse that Peter mentions here, be holy as I am holy, is a verse from Leviticus. It's mentioned four times in that book. Peter's picking up the truth of the Old Testament here. The way Christians lived in the Old Testament, their holiness may seem strange to us at times. And many theologians and authors have have written and spilled much ink over how does the Old Covenant relate to the New Covenant? How do these things overlap? How do they play out? If you ever get confused, just go straight to the Ten Commandments. All the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament except for one, which is the Sabbath rest. But we've entered that because Christ is our rest. 
so we're still keeping that commandment. The morality of the Old Testament carries over into the New because our God is the same. In the Old Testament, men and women were told, if you do this, you're unclean. And they weren't allowed to throw up their hand and say, God, but why? Why does it have to be this animal with a cloven hoof or this animal with scales that I can't eat? Why do I have to dress this way? Or as we read earlier in the service, reap my field up into the earth. Why do I have to do all these things? God wanted them to be distinct and to show that he was in their midst. By living set apart and devoted to him, they would display where their treasure was, where their love was. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, verse 20, and try to connect in your mind how this passage relates to the Old Testament. Cleanliness. Here it is. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Based on that verse, it's, it's self-contradictory to say, I want to be used by God and I want to know him, but I want to be careless about wanting more holiness and striving for it. That was true in the Old Testament, and it's true today. So that muscle of our Bible intake. But there's also a muscle of prayer. I don't know about you, but any point, any season of your Christian life, you'll feel a twinge of guilt that you're not praying enough. It happens to the most spiritual people I've ever met. Because our muscle of prayer is a muscle that is completely devoted to holiness. You can't use prayer for your own ends and enjoy it. You can't use prayer just when you feel like it and find any enjoyment. It's a muscle completely used for holiness, which is why we don't like to use it very often. So listen to this. Listen to verse 17. And if you call on him, that's prayer. If you call on him. That's how we know this is about the muscle of prayer. We need to strengthen this muscle. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. These aliens, these pilgrims and exiles were on the move, but yet they could always call upon God in prayer. I know that there's a popular phrase in culture. It it goes something like, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. You heard that? And And right here, they're calling upon God as father. He's their father, and then in verse 14, it said obedient children. So there's this familial parenting, child, father relationship going on here. And if we think about what our culture says, it's not what you know, but who you know. We can begin to get really comfortable here. God is our Father. He's loving. He's kind. I remember when I was 
16 years old, getting my first job, I received some advice from a, a kid in my high school. His name was Joe Taylor. He said, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I was like, what do you mean? I needed a job, my first job. He's like, I can get you a job. I know people. I was like, you don't know anybody. But he did. His dad was Joe Taylor. Taylor made horse farms in Kentucky. And he, he worked, walked right up to the restaurant, Sal's Italian Chop House, this little fine dining establishment where he and all his equestrian buddies would eat. He walked in there, grabbed me an application, said, fill it out. Don't worry about anything except for the part at the end where it says references and put my name and my phone number. And I remember filling out that job application, name, where you're from, all these. And then it, it said work experience. I had nothing to say. But I remember what he said. Just make sure my name is on there. Turned it in. Got a call a week later. You're hired. I thought, you know what? That's the best advice I've ever heard. It's not what you know. It's who you know. And at first glance, that's what this verse seems to imply. If you call on him as father. But don't lie to yourself. It's not only who you know, but what you know about the one you know. Look at what it says. Father and judge. God is a judge. And he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. This is why we conduct ourselves with fear throughout our pilgrimage here on earth. God's going to judge you impartially. You can't look to other Christians and think, my holiness is okay because I'm a little bit more holy than them, whatever standard you're using. God's judging impartially. Everyone is swept aside. It's you and him in judgment. To compare your holiness to someone else or to think that God's going to grade your holiness on a curve, that he is partial and shows favorites, is as silly as the tooth filled with cavities, looking at the tooth that had a root canal and saying, I'm better than you. I'm not going to take care of myself or brush from now on. I'm never going to be like you. I still got my roots. And then the tooth beside it that has no cavities says, I'm better than both of you. I don't have a single cavity, and I got my roots, so I'm not brushing. That's silly. And it's silly for us to think that we pursued holiness a little bit when we became Christians, so now we coast. Now we can sip on the world's ideas, the world's entertainments, and be okay. Our holiness is offered up to a God who judges impartially. We have to conduct ourselves with fear. But here's the best part of this whole passage. Verses 18 through 21. The spirit in which we do all of these commands, the spirit that keeps them from being mere moralistic living, is verse 18, knowing. We have to know something. We have to know the truth of the gospel, knowing you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You couldn't buy your way to God. You couldn't give something precious of your own self or your own family. It was the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A holy sacrifice is the grounds by which you are even able to come to God. 
So for you to not care about holiness now is for you to show that you don't really understand how you became a Christian if you even are a Christian. What God are you claiming to know savingly if you heard a call to salvation but you don't also hear a call to holiness and love? How can you be so sure that you heard that call of salvation? Because they don't come into two different ears. They all come through the same side at the same time when you are offered salvation. That's why the first word in this entire passage today was therefore, and that's why the first word in verse verse 18 is the word knowing. Therefore, in light of our salvation, knowing the gospel, we do these things. If you've tuned out up until this point in the service because you consider yourself a non-Christian and you're here for some other reason than to grow in holiness, I wonder how all this sounds to you. After salvation, this is what Christians are to be doing. Salvation isn't just a one-time thing anyway. It, It involves our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. It's holistic. But after we're saved, I wonder if you've often thought Christians are just the people who go to church and read their Bible and pray a little bit. And they try to be nice. Is that what you've seen here? Holiness looks a little bit more robust than that, doesn't it? I wonder, non-Christian friend, if you've noticed what you are giving all of your effort to. How are your spiritual muscles doing? Let me say clearly, they're not just flabby. They're not just something you can begin to, to tone up a little bit. You have no spiritual muscles. You are dead in your flesh. And if you try to do any of this without the gospel, you'll have no motivation and you'll have no energy. And if you are a believer and you've taken your eyes off the gospel, you will also have no motivation to do any of this. But when you look at what Christ has done, foreknown before the foundation of the world, you look at what he's done by by dying on the cross with with precious blood, without blemish or spot. So he's dying not for his sins, but for for yours, for the person who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And then he was raised again, verse 21. That's what your faith and hope are placed in. That's where your motivation for this holiness comes from. So non-believer, don't try to clean yourself up and get holy to then come before God. This is the root of all the holiness talked about here. The gospel. God created you to live holy, to love him, to worship him, to reflect him, to know him, to enjoy him. Holiness is not boring. Holiness is you becoming more like God. The most joyous being in existence. But because you've chosen to go your own way and to be holy for something else, we're all pursuing holiness. You're either trying to be set apart and devoted to God, or you're trying to be set apart and devoted to just your spouse with God out of the picture. Or you're trying to be set apart and devoted to just getting this job that you've always wanted, earning this income that you've always wanted. Or maybe you're set apart and devoted to lust and pornography and sleeping around and dabbling in impurities. 
We're all set apart and devoted to something. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's one of God's good gifts that you've set apart all of your thinking and devoted yourself entirely to. It's kind of tricky with good gifts, isn't it? It's not that we, we get rid of everything and God's the only thing and we just neglect all of our responsibilities, but it's that our holiness causes us to be better husbands, better wives, better parents, better employees, better citizens of this world because we're not devoted to any created thing. We're set apart and devoted to God. This is all anchored in the gospel. So before we, we spend a little bit of time on love, which will be less time than holiness, because I'm assuming you have a pretty clear definition of love. Follow with me, verses 13 through the passage. I'm going to reread it, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to reread these verses, and we're going to strip away every word that causes effort on our part, and we're going to replace it with a word that's just easy and comfortable and the natural flow that we would have if we just give in to the flesh. Okay? So listen carefully. This is Christianity without holiness. This is Christianity without effort. Verse 13, let your mind be lazy. Let your mind be wearing flip-flops and your comfy house slippers. Let your mind just put on its favorite pair of jeans. Sit back, relax, take a sip. Be drunk on worldliness and buzzed with entertainment, taking the things of God lightly. Verse 14, as rebellious children going on their own way, when they feel like it, whenever they want, follow the same passionate impulses you've always had. The instinctual feelings After all, you were made this way, weren't you? Just do you. Verse 15, let your holiness be optional. Let your holiness be in areas of conduct that you pick and choose, that that your church emphasizes, but not all your conduct. Choose those areas of conduct that are comfortable, that fit your schedule. Verse 16, since it's kind of written, I mean like maybe sort of, um, I'm not sure, but the authors wrote these words. I guess the intention of the author, well, what it means to me is God's kind of holy. That's an attitude of not it is written. The author has an intention. It takes effort to read God's word. You don't just approach it, well, here's what it means to me. Verse 17 of ease. Conduct yourselves with casualness and slap an authentic label when you pray to your father. An attitude of no reverence. A healthy dose of apathy. And do it for a little while, not your whole life. Verse 18, forgetting. Not remembering, forgetting. Forgetting that you were ransomed. Verse 22. Let's talk about love for a second. If we read verse 22 and we take out our effort and our holiness, verse 22 is going to sound like this. Let's read it without effort, and then let's read it with holiness. Without spiritual effort, verse 22 would say, having polluted your souls by your disobedience to the truth, resulting in a fake, mask-like actor on stage, only on Sunday, love for one another. A love that occasionally, on a whim, flows from your filthy heart. Now let's read verse 22 
if we've been living this holiness stuff that Peter's been saying and we know the gospel. Verse 22 would sound a lot like it actually sounds here. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's the gospel. The purpose of you knowing the gospel is that linking word for. For a sincere brotherly love. Do you hear the first and second greatest commandments there? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So holiness is not a private thing we keep between ourselves and God that has no effect on others. This is point two, love. Love well. Holiness and love are not at odds with each other. We've been talking about these spiritual muscles, the mind, the heart, the will, all these different muscles we can use to holiness. Think how silly and, and just crazy it would be if you saw a bodybuilder walk out of a gym rippling with muscles and there's a lady putting groceries in her car, frail, with a walker, and she can't put the gallon of milk in the back of the car. And she says, sir, would you help me? Nah, I've been working on this bicep too long. I'm sorry, I, I'm too sore. I can't, no, I can't lift that. What's the point of exercising in the gym if you can't help and love your neighbors? Is it just to look in the mirror and flex? That's what happens to you, Christian, if you pursue holiness and you've just neglected this love piece, this love part. We are a church, I get it. This is one of the reasons I came here to be a pastor. We're a church who strives for right doctrine right teaching, getting things accurate, precise, and right. The gospel, atonement, substitutionary atonement, justification by faith. But if we pride ourselves on getting it right, and we're not just as focused on loving well, we're just like that bodybuilder. It's kind of repulsive. But praise God, I see so many of you not doing that. So many of you. The way you care for one another outside the gatherings of Sunday mornings, the way you're praying for one another, the way you would drop whatever you're doing to help one another. But we can be more earnest in our love, and that's what he's calling us to here. He says, a sincere brotherly love, verse 22, love one another earnestly. If our love's not sincere, it becomes hypocritical and manipulating. If our love's not brotherly, with our own ease and our own flesh, it becomes a contractual type of love that's calculating. If we're not loving earnestly, then it's just a convenient love. It's just sporadic. If we're not loving pure-hearted, then our love is a selfish interaction. It's, it, interaction. it's a hesitant type of love. But all this is flowing from the gospel. Verse 22 is how we should love. And then the end of the passage may sound kind of strange. He quotes Isaiah. Peter quotes Isaiah and starts to just seemingly randomly at first, starts quoting about grass and flowers. and What's he talking about? How does this relate to everything we've been hearing? He quotes something that Isaiah said to exiles in captivity who were tempted to be unholy and tempted to lose faith, lose hope, and to not love well because they're in captivity. And he's making a contrast between what's going to perish and fade and what's incorruptible. 
The grass is us. The flowers are us. What the world holds dear. So let's close this sermon with a few objections that are in your heart and mind. I know they are because they come in my heart and mind, and I'm a sinful human just like you are. Let's close our time with these objections. And I want you to see that every objection mentioned is just a blade of grass, it's just a flower, an excuse. I wonder if this flower ever grows in your field. Objection number one. But pastor, I might start to think that I'm, I'm earning my salvation with all this effort talk. Perhaps I'm going to even confuse other Christians. I want to keep it simple. I just want to focus on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved. By faith, it's, it's a gift. It's not of your own doing. What's the answer to that objection? The timeless truth of God's word that's going to outlast that little flower of misunderstanding? God's word says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Your efforts unto sanctification are God's work. Don't be afraid. If you're focusing on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, remember it's followed by verse 10, which says he's prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. James supplements Paul's writings. He shows us how works of faith fit into our sanctification. Objection number two. Maybe this flower is growing in your garden. Pastor, I'm old, I'm sick, I'm tired. I'm retired. I'm not working anymore. Look at my health. This stuff is just for the young and the energetic Christians. I ain't got no effort left in me, Pastor. You want me to exert effort and strive and strenuous participation and responsibility and holiness and earnest love? I do. And here's why. That objection is met by the fact that Jesus knows our frames. He knows that we're just dust. He knows how to measure our efforts accordingly to our ability and our understanding, not just our physical status. Our efforts at 80 years old or 75 years old, whether it's 80 years old or 18 or 28, that may look very different in your intensity of how vigorously you pursue holiness on the outside. But the inward man's renewed day by day, isn't it? So the Christian who has been living a long time, that inward man has been being renewed a long time, and it could be very vigorous, very powerful, very full of life, something that that brand new Christian might not even know. So it's a different intensity, but not different in kind. Holiness follows us our whole life. Your spiritual muscles are not like your physical ones. Take heart. Another objection. Here's a weed that grows in the garden of our holiness. I just want to love God and others. Theology, this personal holiness stuff, it's focusing too much on holiness the real task is love. Don't try to set these together. It's love. Don't try to put holiness next to my love, Pastor. You're distracting me. Answer? The only holiness that distracts from God's love is a hypocritical holiness, a legalistic kind, that makes specific external lists or compares with others. It's devoid of the gospel and the heart's involvement in gospel obedience. God's word doesn't give us this option to separate the two. 
if it were wisest to separate the two, he would have told us that and revealed it, but he hasn't. We don't pick and choose. They have a direct correlation. Have you considered the damage done by striving to love without holiness? Striving to do acts of social justice without holiness, without a knowledge of God? What do you do when you then win a hearing where somebody wants to listen? Where's your motivation? Well, it's going to be pretty self-centered if holiness hasn't met with your acts of love. Here's another objection. You don't get it, Pastor. I can't pursue holiness right now, or much less earnestly loving somebody else, because, and then you fill in the blank. Put the current situation you're facing in that blank. I can't pursue this right now because of this. This is happening to me right now. Answer? Need some weed killer to spray on that? It's the context of the letter. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, but I know you're grieving. Various trials, various griefs. Peter is writing to people who are being reviled. Who are being slandered and mistreated. Persecuted even. And yet he's calling them to keep pursuing holiness and love. Because he knows that their individual responses to their suffering, there's actually a bigger posture in the Christian life, holiness and love, not just how they respond to suffering. So our circumstances can't be an excuse because if you're going through tough times, so were they. And this is the first thing he calls them to before he gives them all the specifics of how to handle the suffering. Last few objections right here. Objection. Pastor, I keep trying to be holy, but my spouse, my friend, my, my church, they don't appreciate it. They don't take proper notice. They don't encourage me enough. They keep fault-finding and finding errors in me. Answer. Remember verse 13. Place all of your hope fully on God, not on man or the responses mankind gives you. Who can discern his errors? Yeah, they may be still fault-finding because they may see errors that you don't even see yet. Have you forgotten who does notice and see all? Verse 16, verse 17, if we despair of personal holiness, we've forgotten why Christ even came. Yes, your holiness is not good enough. You won't get the recognition you deserve because it's not ultimately about you anyway. Last objection. If this blade of grass or flower or weed, whatever you want to call it, is growing in your Christian life, I want you to listen very carefully. Here's the objection. God will make me holy one day at the end. Parentheses, glorification. So why bother to put forth all this effort right now? I'm good. Or maybe I'm not good, but stop telling me to do these things because you keep telling me on other Sundays he's going to make us holy one day. So why go for it now? Non-Christian, listen up. Christian, listen up. Have you considered the answer that if you have no taste and thirst and striving for living holy and loving well now, if that's your attitude, you're in danger of being deceived when you confidently say, well, God was just going to make me holy on the last day. How do you know God's going to make you holy on the last day and not send you to hell? 
Have you not trembled at Hebrews 12:14? Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you don't want to pursue this, you're not going to see the Lord. So don't self-contradict yourself by saying, I'm just going to be made holy on the last day. It doesn't matter. It does. This is good news. Christians, did you hear that? If you strive for holiness, you're going to see the Lord. There are some in this place, and there are some listening who have tender consciences that think, I'm not holy enough. Are you striving for it? You're going to see the Lord if you are. Come to Christ. If you feel like, I've got no effort left, I, I, I don't have any motivation, come to Christ. That's where holiness begins. That's the root. Read books like R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God, Jerry Bridges, Pursuit of Holiness, J.C. Ryle, Holiness. Jesus used his splendor and strength of his holiness to live well, to secure our salvation, to love well. So how should we end this sermon on holiness? Should we grab a quote from one of these guys? These theologians who've studied holiness? It's clear to us that the best quote has already been said today in our passage. God himself. Quote God. 1 Peter 1, 16. The Holy Spirit has clearly told us, It is written, be holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's do that. Let's pray for our holiness right now. Pray with me. Holy Father, we, we confess our, our ignorance to holiness, our, our apathy, our couch potato-like living, our complaining spirit, our, our self-justifying hypocritical spirit, our legalistic spirit, and all these matters. We pray, Lord, that you would make holiness what we joyfully put forth effort to because of your gospel. Help us, Lord, to, to strive after these things. Help us to not be comfortable, but help us to not be burdened that it, it all depends on how perfectly we are holy. Help us to keep the gospel in view. Lord God, I pray for those in this room who don't know you, for those who are hearing these words that have never trusted in your righteousness, your holiness. They're still relying on their own ability to try to be set apart and devoted to you. Father, help us exercise these muscles with effort that is so hard on most days to come up with. Help us to have joy. Help us to have effort. Help us to live holy and let it all help us to love well. We thank you, Lord, that in heaven we will continue to live holy and love well. It will not end when we die. To your glory, it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Respond to, to God's words preached to us today. Thank you.